Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3 cast. My name is Brian. With me, as always, is Vince. We are still without a Zach. Next week, I think, is the return of Zach. So, every mark your calendars. Uh, it's going to be like when Gabo comes to The Simpsons because he'll be really popular for about a week and then he'll be canceled for calling all of you guys SOBs. So, <laughs> uh, he'll be canceled for, for our, our listeners correctly identifying when he hasn't actually read the books. Yes, exactly. <laughs> now that we have let them all in on that secret, I'm uh, never going to let him forget. Never. Never. All right, let's let's talk about DC Pride. We're gonna we're gonna cover DC Pride in the first half of our show because there's a lot to talk about, and then we'll run through the rest of the books after that. So uh, this is DC. Is this the first DC Pride special? I think they've done something similar to this for Pride Month before, haven't they? Um, I don't think it was anything that was explicitly Pride related. Although there although there may have been. You know, there may have been some directed digital stuff. This would have been um, good to research before we yes. started the show. Yes, but, it would uh, have been. Um, I at, at most, I thought I thought there was maybe a digital special or something at one point. Um, but as we've talked about on this show a number of times, it seems like DC is making a more concerted effort to do these anthologies where you know minority groups of some sort, whether it was the the Asian Pacific Islander one from last month or there was a, a Black History Month one that was on this year or last year. You know, there have been just a number of of these titles that have been just showcasing a more diverse group of characters and a more diverse group of creators. And I feel like unless you are the most knee-jerk reactionary, I don't see how you could see this as necessarily a bad thing. I think that there are some bad habits that can come from this, but I think in general having a more diverse group of characters on the page, you know, a couple times a year, I don't really see what the big deal is there. But have you seen anyone really negative about this? Um, no, but I uh, I don't... Uh, I mean, you know, aside from people who would obviously be um, reactionary about it that you would, like, accidentally bump into on the on the... He on the dirty streets of online, right? Um, <laughs> the hive of scum and villainy that that is yes. farmers only. Yes, of course. Um, the farmers really don't like it, but I, I could see that. Yeah. Um. So um, we have let's see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine stories in this book. I would say nine stories of varying quality. Um, I think overall this book looks really nice. And we'll get into it in a second. But I have a question I wanted to sort of pose to you as an overarching question about these type of books. Is there a... Concern may be the wrong word. Is there a, a, uh, a possibility that DC is, is... That by focusing on books like this, they're not as worried about integrating these characters into the monthly comics rotation... And that they, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a, a purposeful thing, but do you think that having specials like this, don't allow these characters to have, chances taken on them for a one shot or a miniseries because oh we'll throw that into the Pride book in June, uh, or we'll throw that into the you know X X group of characters book, 
in in whatever month like is is there a fear of that or are, are is that not related should, should should there be able to be this i mean there, of course there should be able to be this book and then other books starring these characters but do you think that that's a legitimate fear i i think there's some truth to that uh i don't think it's you know across the board uh correct you know like like for example, like I think what you say is very true when it comes to uh, like Batwoman. Where has she been? I feel like I feel like um, since the most recent solo title run ended, you've seen her pop up here and there for for maybe like a scene. Um, but for the most part, I feel like we've only gotten these. You know, she might pop up in an anthology here and there, mm-hmm. and that's wild to me. Um, since there is a Batwoman TV show and I know it's not, it's not the same Batwoman that we see here, but you know, circumstances, uh, surrounding that show are kind of weird. So, um, but I mean, to be fair, like aside from the flash, which has had an ongoing the entire time that the flash TV show has been on, there was not a green arrow ongoing when arrow started or when arrow ended. There was, there's not been a Supergirl ongoing the entire time that show's been on. There has not been a Batwoman ongoing. There, there has not been a um, anything resembling a, a Legends of Tomorrow. I know that, I know that's a created for television type show, but I feel like if, if this was the '90s and there was a show called Legends of Tomorrow, there'd be a comic called Legends of Tomorrow also. But DC has right. really not done a good job of capitalizing on their television successes. Yeah, in, in and the that's... comics. That's kind of what I'm saying. That's that's like I'm that part I'm agreeing with you on. Like, there's no reason why there shouldn't be a Batwoman book. You know, of course, right? Um, other characters, like you know, there's a Harley story in here, and you, a week can't go by without there being a, a book with Harley in it. Right. So, you know, there's that, and then there's like Constantine shows up in this one story, and he's all over the place um, at DC. You know, constantly. Um, so you <laughs> even know, Midnighter right now. Seems yeah. to be everywhere at DC somehow. Yep, yep. There's a there's a there's a nice Alan Scott story in here, and and well, he's not like everywhere in the DCU right now. Certainly, we've seen enough teases of him over the last couple months to say like something's right around the corner for him, and and has been for you know mm-hmm. since since Death Metal. Um, uh, some of these characters were featured, you know, in in Future State, you know. So, but 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 I think you know. There is truth to what you say, because um, I do feel like we're only seeing some of these characters in anthology fashion. And I think I think it is due to like the ever present focus on the Batman stuff and just DC, DC taking less chances with their with their line in general. I I mean, to hammer home the, the, the bat point for a second here, we're talking about a bunch of books this week. Only Wonder Woman does not have a Bat character appear in it. Yeah. Every other book released this week is either a straight-up Gotham title <laughs> or it's the Pride book, which has a number of Bat characters show up in it. Yeah, good call. So, I mean, that is that's that is absolutely uh, true here. So, anyway, let, let's, let's start with this. Uh, the first story is a Batwoman story. It's called The Wrong Side of the Looking Glass by James Tynion IV and Troy Lewin. Um. I thought the wind's art was really great here. I thought this mm-hmm. this story looked fantastic. Um, I have a bit of a hot take about this story, though. 
Um, and you know, I, I I think that it's it's well documented how highly I think of Tynion as a writer right now. However, I felt that this book in a lot this story in a lot of ways conflates femininity I hate that word I hate saying that word um, with sexuality and I feel like there's a lot here about um, why can't I think of Batwoman's name at the moment Um, Kate Kane Kate thank you there's a lot about Kate here not feeling like a um, kind of feeling like a tomboy and that's conflated with her sexuality and I feel like that's just not a great look and I understand that there is some sort of correlation with her feeling like an other because of her sexuality but I just felt like this was maybe a little bit too much put on there being correlation between being a tomboy and being a lesbian did you pick up on that at all or is that just me being a dick um now that you say that I, I I see what you mean I don't it didn't occur to me while reading it because I think like the story of Kate Kane's uh, upbringing and military, you know, the way she was raised with her dad and everything, like that's 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 always kind of been an element of it. And I think, like, well, you're right. Like, I, like that isn't how I think of of things, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I think certainly there are people that do, and I think there are people that experience that. Um, oh sure yes when they look in the mirror and and you know like but but i see what you're saying i i totally know what you're saying um i i just think that uh that that probably is a, a valid people a valid thing that that some people feel especially as they're growing up you know and uh going through puberty and seeing a society reflect certain things that aren't that are necessarily black and white when they're really not sure you know sure and i also i, I do not for a second think that tanyan is trying to be dismissive or reductive in his understanding of of the um the emotional feelings of of you know of anyone who is struggling with their identity it just seemed to me like there's a lot in here that is just like I knew I was different because I because I, I didn't want to look like everybody else. Yeah. And I just feel like I know a lot of lesbians who are just as as quote girly as any straight girl and just as many straight girls who are as, you know, tomboyish or however who just don't express themselves in the traditional, you know, ways that that we see people express femininity in femininity again i can't say that word in art right so i i don't i don't think that tanyan is necessarily um you know trying to be dismissive or, redu- or reductive here it just it just struck me as a little bit simplistic sure um sure but that's that's my only real beef with this story what did you think of this story um i thought it was uh, really beautiful to look at um I, I I really love this art. The last time we saw it was in the that like uh, the Asian Pride mm-hmm. yes uh, book. What you know uh, whatever that was the, called the celebration. Really, the celebration. Yeah, it had a really long yeah, title. It did. Um, but uh, but yeah yeah, it's just great to look at. Very like um, 
it reminded me of like a like a really great like 90s anime and I'm art style and I'm thinking of a particular manga or show and it's I just can't it's on the tip of my tongue but I cannot think of of the title or even describe but I know I've seen like this similar style before um in like a romance uh manga or something mm-hmm. and um it's really not only is it beautiful to look at but it's very fitting here um the story i think i i liked the the twist with a mad hatter being a part of this um i think for a while it it occurred to me that, that this was more or less like a, a just another retelling of um, Kate's origin, sort of from her point of view or her relationship with her sister, which I think is really well tread territory at this point. Agreed. Yes. But I think in the in these anthology books, you're going to see a lot of that, especially with like I can imagine a DC Pride comic, rightfully so. Like I think this is the right approach rehashing a lot of origin type stuff or storytelling that we already know, you know, right. Um, you have the potential to get a, a lot of eyes on this who, um, maybe haven't looked at DC in a while, you know? Um, and if they ever have it all, you know, just, um, based on traditionally who comics were marketed to, I mean, it's, we've come a long way, right? Like, maybe, <laughs> right so like um you know I'm not, I'm not saying like this is an entirely new audience but i but I, there's a, probably a big audience of people who have checked out of like dc and marvel because they're not um because they've been regressive at times and not representative enough you know mm-hmm. um so you know i think it's maybe the right approach to do stories like that where it's a lot of rehashing things we already know um I think as long as they as long as they look really good, then it's for someone who knows the story, it's enjoyable to revisit them again, you know. Um, but I would think like, you know, for readers like you and I who have to read these books week after week and like never miss a DC comic, basically, uh, some of this stuff was kind of just a rehash. But sure. you know that do- that doesn't make it bad. That's not. It's right. just. That comes with the territory of like what we do, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like I'm going to be repeating that today uh, a few times because there were <laughs> there were a few stories like that. Yes. In this and yes. even, and even elsewhere. In other books yes. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, so second up is called Time in a Bottle. And if you had to guess what character would get two extended pieces <laughs> in this book, who would you have said, Vince? I uh, well, extraneo. Probably. Of course, extraneo, right? <laughs> All of us thought we get two extraneo stories here. So this you is. Mean, uh, go ahead. Sorry. What you mean? You mean not Doctor Strange? <laughs> yes, I, I mean gay DC Doctor Strange. Yeah. Um, the Superior Strange, by the way. Yes, agreed. Um, I'll take Gregorio over Stephen Strange every time. One hundred percent. So uh, this is uh, featuring Midnighter, Constantine, and Extraneo. It's by Steve Orlando and Stephen Byrne, who we've seen do some work together in the past. Um, you, I talked a lot about the last book. You, you talk about this one. Okay. Um, I immediately was really drawn to this one based on Steve Orlando's dialogue. I mean, Stephen Byrne's art's always great to look at. 
um, it's no surprise that this this book looks good and um, the characters all look great. Like Stephen Byrne is is great at doing character work more than anything, I think. Um, and there's there's a lot of that here, a lot of uh, expressiveness and uh, a wry sense of humor that that applies to the art as well. But man, the this Orlando script. When, when he gets playful like this, you know, when there's a lot of, like, double entendre and stuff like that, like, he really does a great job with that stuff. And it, it I do miss him at DC. Um, I think, you know, most of, I liked most of his DC work from, from Rebirth on. And, uh, uh, you know, there were a couple things that didn't necessarily knock it out of the park. But ne- reading this story from him again... It did make me miss that very Orlandonian Genesis, you know. That like, <laughs> there's something about his scripts that that they're just they're they're so funny or they're like sly sometimes, you know. Um, that I, I miss his voice here. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Um, my, I, I I really don't like that I have the same couple of words appear in a lot of my write ups about these stories. Uh, for tonight, uh-huh. and I feel like I said that this one was like funny, and and I thought there was there was something um like cute and sweet about the interaction between Constantine and Extraño. Like there's there there's just this very I feel like almost all the stories in this book have a very flirty, fun interaction between some of the characters, um, and I like that, and that's fun. I, I just I just feel like. I I don't know if if uh, I never thought there'd be this many versions of kind of the same interaction though, mm-hmm. and I feel like a lot of these stories do have similar sort of cute flirty interactions. Like we see it in this story, we see it in the next story, we see it in the story after that. <laughs> you know, it just it just we get that we get that a lot here. Um, yeah, I I mean I think it's good, but it is good. It is good. It is, I just you know. I, I wish there was slightly more diversity in the types of stories that were told here, but I understand why these are the stories we got. Um, speaking of the stories we got, the next one is called Try the Girl, and it's a Renee Montoya story, and this is written by Vita Ayala and illustrated by Skylar Partridge. Um, I thought this was a fun Renee story. Renee stories tend to be very dark, and this was not at all. This also had a fun visual gag at the end of like lipstick on the on the question mask. That was fantastic. I really appreciated. <laughs> was, um, yeah, it's pulled off really well too. It is. It is, and I also liked the the bit about Renee, about Renee's identity being revealed and her not being the best detective in the room. I enjoyed that as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anything else to say about this? Well, it's interesting that you say it's like not as dark as as you thought it would be. It also appears to be like the art style and the coloring uh lends itself to to looking like a darker noirish detective story really when the when the tone now th- this is not me criticizing it i'm the tone of the story doesn't really match what you expect from the the character and the visuals but i, I liked the way that worked here like i think mm-hmm. I think it was a boon to the story. I was almost dreading. It's interesting because the art is very nice to look at. I I really like 
the art in this story. So I'm not criticizing the art. But when I saw the art, I said, oh, I know exactly the type of story we're going to get. You know, I I know what this is going to be. And as I read it, and it was a little more playful and a little more loose, um, even though there is some serious stuff in there, uh, I I was surprised by it then. And, uh, you know, it was it was more it was more pleasant and lighter than I thought it would be, especially with that capper at the end, which really, really kind of nailed the the mix of tones there. Um, so I think uh, both Ayala and uh, Skylar Patridge, they, they pulled off a very uh, delicate balancing act here really well, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. Next up, we have a story called Another Word for a Truck to Move Your Furniture, mm-hmm. <laughs> which um, we'll get to that title in a minute. This is U-Haul. A, yeah, U-Haul. Uh, <laughs> Go to Urban Dictionary for that one, Brian. <laughs> Do I have to? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you're going to, yeah. <laughs> if you want to know what it means. Oh, I know what it means, but uh, okay. <laughs> we're not going to get into it. Um, All right. Okay. So uh, th- this is a Harley Quinn uh, Poison Ivy story. Written by Mariko Tamaki, illustrated by Amy Reader. Nice to see Amy Reader doing some DC stuff after her run on Amethyst. Um, again, this is a kind of cute Harley Ivy story. We get a, we've gotten a lot of these stories lately. I think this one is is a fine addition to that. I think Amy Reader's artwork looked beautiful. I love the way that she illustrates characters in motion. I think she's one of the best sort of at at this this fluid motion in battle. I really like the way she handles that. Um, But I don't have too much to say about the story itself. Do you? Um, Just that, you know, like, I I think this story was purposefully melodramatic. Um, So it's it's essentially examining um, Poison Ivy and Harley's relationship, which... As we know, like not only from reading the comics, but from like the dirty Uncle Rich rumor hotline, whatever, um, there's been some hubbub at DC behind the scenes about whether you know they were actually going to call them a couple or not. It's been going on for years, right? I, some people think there's even like a full-on blacklisting of it. I think people, certain people at DC, deny that it's a total blacklist, but it's more like DC just wants to keep things open for like, I mean, that would be their telling, right? Like they would say, we want to keep things open for like storytelling potential or whatever, whatever that means. Um, but I think this comic serves to lay it out pretty plainly, um, that they are a couple, right? Yeah. And I, and I like that. I like that Tamaki and reader like really play up the melodrama behind that. You know, they, they delay it throughout the telling of this story. And then finally there's the payoff at the end. Right. Um, and it's really cute and fun. And I think like, I, I think, I think people will be satisfied by this. I think sometimes the mistake that these companies make, you, you don't like when, how do I explain this without, I don't, um, I hope people understand what I mean when I say this, but like you don't want to give in to every fan whim, right? Like fans come up with all kinds of ideas about who these characters are and they We'll talk about ship... one of your theories about this later. Yeah, we will. Yeah, and I'm right. But anyway, like they ship things <laughs> they ship things here and there, you know, 
And that's great. That's fun. Um, but it's not incumbent upon a, co- a comic company to completely adhere to that all the time. Right? Right. That said, Poison Ivy and Harley has been a thing for a long, long time. And if it's something that they haven't explicitly come out with in the comics, which I, I think they have, I think they have explicitly said it or at least come as close as you can in the past. You know, they've split them up. They've put them together and split them up before, which is a thing, but you know, it's as explicit as this stuff gets. Um, so to toy with that relationship at this point is kind of silly to me, like to pretend that maybe it's not a thing, you know? So I think when people read this story, it's easy to be cynical, but I think this story should satisfy people. I think maybe there's still other stories where DC's trying to play it both ways. I'm not thinking of anything in specific, um, but I can see where like with other characters, fans might be disappointed at the continuing lack of commitment to something about their character. Um, but I don't think you can say that about this story uh, and these two characters. I think they lay it out pretty clearly here. I think it's fun in the way that they do it. Uh, and I think the payoff is great. So see, I think I, they did a good job with this. I'm not disagreeing with the thing you said. I'm not. What I will say, though, is I think that in the last two or three years, there really hasn't been as much of the whitewashing of their relationship. I think we've seen a much clearer depiction of it. I think in the Bat books right now, you see the, you see the degree to which Harley is going... The 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 lengths to which Harley is going to just try and save Ivy, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's if it's not outwardly said why, it is so clear that it doesn't need to be said, right? Like I I feel like it's just uh, I feel like it's pretty much overt at this point at DC. That yeah, a couple. I uh, I think you're right. The the one place I'll push back it, just very quickly is that they had that. Harley and Ivy miniseries a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And the, I think I, I side with the fans when like in that series, it was like, okay, this is finally when they're going to, even though you're right, like it, it has been pretty explicit before, but like, okay, this is when they're finally going to commit to this. Right. And then the miniseries was essentially about splitting them up. <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> the and miniseries the, that if I'm not mistaken no I'm sorry I'm thinking of it I was going to say it takes place between the panels of a different series but that was a different Harley Quinn miniseries my apologies <laughs> there are so many Harley Quinn miniseries at DC in the last few years that that's actually an honest mistake I could make <laughs> because yeah. there have was, been so was many that like Harley Quinn and her gang of Harleys or or even something else I think it was that. something else besides that actually oh, wow. um, okay it's a, I, I want to say it took place like between panels of a Harley Quinn ongoing issue. Sure. Um, but yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I do agree with that. I, I, I'm, I'm, I forgot. Was that the Cecil Castellucci written book? Maybe. Boy. Couldn't I, tell. Yeah, I think so, but I'm not entirely positive of that either. That feels like a lifetime ago. It does. <laughs> it, it, it does. <laughs> yeah. Life is hard. Um, okay. Let, let's move on the next story here which is uh he's the light of my life it's an alan scott obsidian story written by sam johns illustrated by klaus jansen who i don't i can't remember the last time that jansen has illustrated a book by himself he has 
inked a lot of people at DC as of late, but I can't remember the last time we saw a Klaus Janssen, you know, illustration at DC in some time. It's really nice to see that. Yeah, I don't know about DC, but I I think I've read something. Did he do like a Marvel Deadpool series at one point? He may have. He may have, yes. That's probably the last thing I read. Let me... You you talk and I'm gonna look sure, this up sure. real quick because it's bothering me. Um, so you know this was this is following up on the Infinite Frontier Zero revelation that you know that the Alan Scott of Earth Prime or whatever, however DC is now classifying this Earth, the Meta Earth or whatever, that this one is it, that that this Alan Scott is gay and that he has always been gay and had hit it, and you know kind of this all started in James Robinson's Earth 2 book back in the New 52, but has been adopted by the mainline DC um, continuity. And I think it's actually, uh, we've talked about this before, I think. I think that Alan Scott is the perfect character to do this with. I know that people do not tend to like when a previously established character of whatever sexuality or, you know, insert other changeable function here, whether it's uh, race or it's whatever. People don't like when those characters are changed. They would argue that there should be new characters created that fit these roles as opposed to retrofitting somebody else. And while I agree with that in principle, I always think it's better to add something new than it is to retrofit something old. I think that Alan Scott is a character who's had like failed rela- many failed relationships over the years, and you could point to this as a reason why it kind of makes sense from like a overall continuity version but also who gives a shit it's not a big deal you're not erasing like to i I think i've said this on the show or if i didn't say it in the show i said it to somebody like i think it would be very very hard to accept if jay garrick was the golden age character they decided to retroactively make be gay because jay and his wife have such a long tradition at dc and she is easily the most important supporting character in any Jay Garrick story. So to eliminate her would feel very false. But Alan Scott has never had a part. He's been married to villains and there's been mind wiping and all that. It, it doesn't it doesn't matter that Alan Scott is gay. It doesn't take away any any story of any note from any Green Lantern run. So let's just get that out of the way first. That said, I thought this was a very, very good story. I think that this story delicately balances Alan's coming out story with Obsidian being a uh, Todd is his his given name Todd being an out gay man and it it doesn't come off as as hokey but there are some sort of tent some similar not similar some somewhat uh tender moments between the father and son even if they don't have oh yeah like the most traditionally tender relationship I think that this story did a nice job of giving them both a relationship that feels like it could be real and also one that doesn't get too saccharine or too um what's what I'm looking for? Too staged, right? This this feels somewhat natural for these characters. And I think that it also does a nice job of making Alan a an older gay gentleman without reducing him to any stereotype about that. He's mm-hmm. just he is still the Alan Scott you know and love. He's just gay. And I think that that's a really that that's the best way to do this. There's I, I don't think people will have as much of a problem with this because I think that when you read this story it still very much feels like the Alan Scott you've always read these stories from. 
Um, what did you think of this story? I thought it was great. I, I thought uh, script-wise, the best thing Sam Johns has written yet at DC. Agreed, um, yeah. I think, like, if... <laughs> If they want to give this Johns a JSA book, <laughs> I'm totally on board for that. Hell yes. I mean, just I think like the historical context that they put uh, Alan Scott in, uh, in in this story is just so really well done. You know, the stuff about these sort of uh, secret liaisons on the train because of you know the time that it was in history right and um i think all of that stuff is really delicately written like you said it's not there's nothing stereotypical here you know there's some elements there's familiar elements of stories having to do with this subject matter but they're all handled at least to 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 me as like a a cis straight guy like you know admittedly like i'm going to be worse at detecting <laughs> that kind of stuff, you know, mm-hmm. uh, if, if there is something that smells like bullshit or, or whatever you want to say. But to me, it came off as very sensitively done. And, um, and like you said, very tender. There's a, there's a lot of moments in this where it's like, Oh, that's, that feels like a very honest moment between two characters and not contrived. Um, specifically father and son, you know, um, I also think like, man, how how easily did we slip right back into the father son relationship there? You know where it where it is. It has been slightly strained, but also like, but also still they they are father and son, right? So like, that that push pull really worked for me. Um, I think we, I, yeah, man, it was handled well, and Klaus, Klaus Jansen's art was was good too. Um, you know, nothing fancy, just kind of straight up what you would expect from Jansen uh, after all this time. And uh, just trying to know, get to the ocean. Nothing fancy. Yeah, <laughs> nothing, nothing fancy or special. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Exa- that's exactly it. It's the it's the Cormac McCarthy's The Road. <laughs> if Jimmy Stewart were <laughs> in the lead role, yes, that's that is this art. Best way <laughs> um, to explain it. What I liked about this art. Was I felt that it gave the book a uh, the book the story a relatively timeless quality to it, and because of um you know hyper time and the metaverse and all this, it is a little weird that there's this like World War II veteran who basically looks like he's younger than my mom who's still <laughs> out there fighting crime right like all this stuff is it it, it is a little bit um, ridiculous and so to have an artist that. That sort of just does a, a, just a, that doesn't put too fine of a point on on the age of the characters or on fashion or anything like that. It's just, I think Jansen was the right person for this job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well said. Um, but I, I really like this. I I know we're gonna get more with Obsidian and Jade and Alan in the Infinite Frontier miniseries, which starts in just a few weeks, actually. Um, and so I, I, I'm excited to see what they do there. I hope that these characters are given something to do, especially if we're still having to wait for a JSA title that is supposedly going to feature all three of these characters. 
I hope yeah. that if 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 we're having to wait for that, that they're not just going to be put on the shelf for another year or two, because I think that there there is a lack, even though that DC has done much much better as of late in terms of having their their the diversity on the page. I just think that there there aren't enough there aren't enough LGBTQ characters in DC Comics, and here are two of them that work really well and work, have really great story together. Like the Alan saying that the reason that he came out is because of his son is a really nice bit of writing, mm-hmm. and it gives these characters a relationship that quite literally nobody else in the DC universe has. So let's let's use that originality and let's use that unique storytelling to its to its best ability here. So I hope that this is not the last we see of them for a while. Uh up next is Close Makeup Gift, which is a story with uh two future state characters in it. Um Andy Curry, who is the daughter of Aquaman, as well as um Jess Chambers, who is the Flash of Earth-11. This is written by Danny Lore and illustrated by Lisa Sturley. I really like this story. I thought this was really cute and a lot of fun. And these two characters we don't have a ton of history with, but I thought that both were really well done on the page and gave us a good sense for who these characters are. So if this is your first time reading a story with either of these characters in it, I think you have a pretty good sense of who they are. And I was just very, very charmed by this. What did you think of this story? Um, yeah, I thought it was, a. you know, coming off of the last story, which was quite heavy in subject matter and, and, and went a lot of different places. This was almost like a nice palate cleanser. Um, where it's just like kind of a kind of a fun little romp, you know, pretty low stakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ti- I mean, the title kind of gives that away, right? <laughs> like clothes, makeup, gifts, gift. It just sounds like it sounds like a, a, a low stakes caper, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, I thought it was pretty refreshing in that regard. I think these characters have tremendous chemistry, um, and of course that that's all in the way that you write them. But I think I, I cannot remember who wrote. I cannot remember who wrote them, their relationship primarily in Future State. Was it Joshua Williamson? Yeah, wasn't or... it in the Justice League title, which was written by Joshua Williamson? Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Um, and I think they, they had a really fun chemistry there, and I think they have it here um, with Danny Lohr writing. And I think Lisa Sturley, that's someone whose art I've been um, looking at since the a long lost book, I believe at, um, was that at scout? Um, I believe so. Yes. Yeah. That, that was a really great looking book. And so, um, to, to see Sterling's art pop up at DC was a pleasant surprise for me too, as, as someone who's a fan of them. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I, I liked this and I liked, I've been liking pretty much every story down the line here so far. Yeah, I I wonder if, like, we've seen that there's the Future State Gotham book, which we'll talk about later today, actually, but I wonder if we're going to get any more with some of these other Future State characters, because while while I have my thoughts on the Future State Gotham book, I feel like I would much rather use the space in a Future State book to deal with characters we're not seeing in so many other titles, 
Mm-hmm. I would much rather a future, say, Justice League title that features these characters than than what we're getting in the Gotham book right now. I agree. Yeah, yeah. That I, that kind of feel that book kind of feels redundant. Yes, uh, especially based on the story going on at Urban Legends right now as well. <laughs> yeah. But we'll, again, we'll talk about all of that in a little while. Next up is Be Gay, Do Crime, which is a Pied Piper story by Cena Grace, Rose Stein, and Ted Brandt. You start us off on this one, King. Go for it. Okay. So so this is one story that I didn't care for too much. And I think it's um, – I think Cena Grace is a, a great writer. Um, like I, I've, I've been a fan of, of their work for – a while pretty much like everything they've written but i don't think anyone can get me to care about pied piper i guess because <laughs> like i th- this story just kind of washed over me i i couldn't care less about and i understand like doing a uh pride story for a villain right like i think that that's well is he a villain here well I, I don't know. I mean, traditionally is sure. So yes. you know, yes. um, because then the new character whose name I've already forgotten basically says like, all you do anymore is pose with the Flash. Right. I guess. I, I mean, I guess that's part of the problem with this though, because like, I can't remember when the last time we saw Pied Piper was, and so if that was supposed to come across as like they're a changed person from a hero or villain perspective, it just didn't come across because. We have we have such little context for this character anymore, um, right. and it's hard to read any Pied Piper story, especially a Pied Piper story that references his sexuality and not have Countdown flashback. Oh God! So <laughs> which was which was like, boy, have we come a long way from Countdown? Yes, as far as like <laughs> representation goes. Uh, yes, that's maybe that's maybe uh, scant praise, but <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that that's the lowest possible bar to to clear here, <laughs> I suppose. Um, but you're not wrong. You're not wrong at all about that. Um, yeah, this was fine, I guess. What I liked about this was I like that. How can I say this? I feel like Pied Piper is one of the few characters in the DC universe whose sexuality is always at the forefront of their character. Like, I think that one of the things about Apollo or Midnighter is that you could read an authority story and really never come across their sexuality, and it wouldn't it wouldn't feel weird if they're not talking about their relationship in a certain scene. But I feel like Pied Piper, especially due to Countdown... Oh, that's... Yeah, I mean, that's the perpetrator. Um, but but I, I, I feel like, in in a way, you know that's always a part of who this character is now. So if it's going to be a part of who the character is, make the character at least an intriguing and sympathetic character. And I think that this story does that. Um, not my favorite story in the book by any means, though. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, moving on, we get the comic introduction of Dreamer, who is a character that appears in the Supergirl TV show and this story is written by the uh, the actor who plays Dreamer, Nicole Maines, on the show. It is the first trans superhero on television, and I believe the first trans superhero 
in a comic? No, that can't be right, can it? No, no, but, that no. There, I don't think so. But. There, there is another first involved here that I'm forgetting. Then, but regardless, mm-hmm. uh, Rachel Stott does the art. And I said Nicole Maines is the uh, is the writer. Um, I thought this this story did a decent job introducing the character, except I will say that I feel like this story is better understood if you're current with the Supergirl television show, which I am not. And so I felt like there was a lot of stuff that was sort of implied here that I'm sure is very clear to anybody who is watching that show every week. But that guy's not me. What did you think of yeah, this? Yeah, I felt the – you took the words right out of my mouth. Um, I didn't – until I until I read the profile in the back, I didn't know what this character's deal was um, just because – I haven't watched Supergirl and I'm not, you know, not familiar. And once I read that, I was like, okay, I think I've seen like a, an article about this, you know, mm-hmm. but, but you're right. I think that there's some context left out of this comic. If, if you're not watching the show, um, specifically, I don't, I don't think they refer to the character as trans or really anything about their identity uh, except for that back matter agreed um, yes. which doesn't that doesn't make the story bad it just um uh because i wasn't familiar i was kind of i was like so why is this in the pride book because she because she's dating brainiac five like i i was trying to figure <laughs> out like what the context for it was and then i read the profile and i was like oh okay that makes sense um which you know, like I said, I think the the story is perfectly uh, well written. Um, just yeah, this this is one of the cases where, this is one of the cases where there's somebody reading it, who's being introduced to a new character who that's new to them, and maybe they're not getting the full story as a retread. You know, kind of the, the opposite of the thing that I said about the Kate Kane story. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. So. And what's interesting is that we've we've talked already on this show about how. DC does not cater to its television audience in the comics. And so I I feel like the majority of people who are going to be reading this comic probably aren't watching Supergirl every week. Or at least a a large chunk of those people. So I think it somewhat does the character a disservice by not having a more traditional um, introductory issue. Origin or yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, I, brings, w- I would have sorry. I would have liked to see it. I mean, I'm interested in the kid. This this story did make me interested in this character. Yes, probably not enough to watch a CW show, but um, <laughs> but to see the to see them in more comics, yes. And hopefully that happens. Yeah. Uh, also, this is not the last time this week we're going to get a comic story written by the actor who plays the character on television. It's mm-hmm. A little, little tease for for later down the road. And uh, so our final story here is called Love Life. It's an Aqualad story. It's by Andrew Wheeler and Luciano Vecchio. I have to come out. Friend of the show. Well, I I, I was just going to say, I I really tried my best to have an open mind about this. Uh, For those that don't know, and why would you? Andrew Wheeler has said some pretty bad things about multiversity in the past for no reason. uh, Unprompted. No, look, he said it about us. I'm not saying anything about him. Um, And... uh, you know, uh, I, I felt he said things unfairly, but I really tried to go into this with an open mind and to enjoy this comic for what it was and not bring my feelings with the writer into it, which is something I have to do 
on and on a regular basis with lots of DC stuff because I've I've had the the pleasure and displeasure of meeting a lot of these writers over the years and and artists over the years and some of them I like quite a bit and some of them you know not so much but um, I thought that this had some some really fun stuff in it I just felt like this. I felt like this story had the biggest deus ex machina you can imagine happen in it. And it didn't really happen for any clear reason. It was, I just felt that this was a, a sloppy story that didn't really do too much for me. That said, I want a JLQ book. Um, I just want it written by somebody else. Well, I, I like this quite a bit. Um, I, I see what you're saying. It definitely does end in a deus ex machina, but to me, it's kind of in that like magical superhero comic booky way. Like when the cavalry all arrives. Um, I mean, to me, it just felt very much like game master Anthony here. Like where, you know, <laughs> there's a party. And so all of the queer characters are going to show up all at once. And that rocks. Uh, it does. It does. Rock. I mean, to be fair, that does rock, but yeah. The, the thing about it is, is I think it, Honestly, it worked really well as the final story in this uh, comic. And to see all these characters as, quote-unquote, the JLQ, if that is to be such a thing at DC. It which won't we, be. We, well, <laughs> I, well, we got to talk about that in, in a second. But um, to see that happen on these last couple pages, it was a really strong way to end it. And I think like there were some pretty strong lines that kind of served to you know, if they didn't serve this as a story itself, they served to, um, I just had the word on the tip of my tongue, but like summarize the mission statement of this, this, uh, anthology book in general. Right. I'll, I'll argue with that. I, I do think that this was, I, I think it was, it was somewhat, um, and it was striking to see all of these queer characters, put together and to show that there isn't just one token gay character in comics right now, that there are enough characters to make a justice league at DC full of queer characters and to not have it be a, um, a, a cheap, you know, justice league Detroit level team here, but it would be a powerful, really, uh, you know, really good comic will come from these characters. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, something I wanted to say while we were talking about the, you know, are, do, does DC save certain characters just for anthologies and we'll never see them in like regular books anymore that I thought about it while we were talking about it and I just forgot to mention it, but that reminded me of that contest that DC was doing or the March madness tournament or whatever, mm -hmm. where, uh, there were like 16 pitch, 12 pitches or 16 pitches or something and for books. And there was like the Robin family book. There was the JLQ, you know, and I wasn't really paying attention to that. So I don't know how it all shook out. But so many of those books sounded like great ideas. And JLQ is definitely a great idea. And so I think if it, you know, I guess there might be a one shot. Are all those books getting one shots or... I don't remember now. Yeah, I didn't really follow that thing. But anyway, what I'm saying is it's a great idea for a team. It's a great way to get some of these characters um, 
on the page more. Like I would love if there was a, an extraneo, um, some, you know, he should be on justice league dark, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Or, or, Or whatever, you know? Um, I would hope that all these characters are not then like cloistered off into a just a Justice right, League Dark right. or uh, Justice League Q uh, book, you know. But but I think the concept is is certainly not one without merit, and I think I would be excited for a book like that. Yeah, I mean, and I think that there are a number of characters that showed up here that I either forgot were queer characters or just I maybe I. I never knew like I mean like Natasha Steele um the Ray these are characters that when we see them we typically don't see them talk about their sexuality much so um it was nice to see those characters represented here and I would love to see a team made up of these characters I mean look you know I'm the world's biggest Bunker fan so you know seeing Bunker here is great there, there's a lot of characters here that 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 deserve a a a better look from DC so yeah, I would be all for a JLQ title. I just don't think... I think at best we'd get it as a digital title or as a backup to another title right now. But I'm even I'm even fine with that at the moment. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Mm-hmm. So anything else to say about this anthology in general? I think on the whole it was really good. And I think like... I mean, it is easy to be cynical. And I think there's a valid side to, that says, you know there needs to be more than like one anthology in a year that, that does something like this or that serves these characters. I think that's true. Um, uh, definitely. Um, but I do think there's also merit to say like, well, Mark Andreco says it best in the opening to this. I, I think he says something like, I don't know, I don't have it up anymore, but it's something like, you know, if you would have told me as a kid that, there would be a book like this someday. I wouldn't have believed you, you know? And so right. I believe him when he says that. And I think that that does show you how far things have come. And that's great. Um, obviously, obviously things can always uh, push further in that direction. But, um, you know, for what this is, I think it's a, it was a pretty strong showing all around. I think it served these characters pretty well. And, and it was nice to see a lot of them again. Yeah, you know, my overall thought on this issue comes a lot in the context of this week in DC Comics, which is that I would much rather have stories based on these characters than all the Bat books we're getting right now. Oh, yeah. You know, and uh, I I don't think I'm alone in feeling that, but I I also understand why DC is not going to cancel Detective Comics next week to give us a bunker title, right? Like, I understand why things are the way they are, but I would very much like to see more books like this and these characters being utilized. You know, it just, I, I, I can't, I can't stress enough how I have seen in my own household, how much my daughter flips out for female superheroes. She just, she just loves it, loves it when she finds out about a new superhero girl's character or when I tell her about, you know, I was talking to her this week about um, Far Sector and Joe as a Green Lantern. She said, I thought there was only one Green Lantern that was a girl, and it's Jessica. I was like, oh, no, there's hundreds of female Green Lanterns across the galaxy. And she got so excited about that. And I think that, you know, it just shows that representation really does matter. And that, you know, if we want if we want comics to continue to, to 
to be a thing and to grow and to to be something that that future generations will will dig then we have to give the people who are going to be reading these comics images of themselves in the books and so i i cannot stress enough how much i want to see more dc titles that focus on queer characters or asian characters or or African-American characters or characters from you know, just international characters in general. One of the things that I have, I have often thought about is how in, in about every, every second crisis or so a character will say like, Oh, well, earth is very special in the universe. Right. And that's why there's so many earth stories, but someone needs to do like an America is so special line in these books too, because so many, most of these characters are American characters. You know, I would love to see a more internationally flavored DC comics as well. Um, that was, uh, remember how that was supposed to be like a major element of doomsday clock and then they effectively did nothing with it. Yeah, I do. <laughs> ah, memories. Yep. Misty watercolor. <laughs> um, but yeah, that was the DC pride anthology and we're going to take a break and when we return, we will do the other books from this week in a rapid fire fashion. So stay tuned. Hello, everybody. My name is Mike. And I'm Greg. And together, we are Robots from Tomorrow, a twice-weekly podcast appearing at MultiversityComics.com. Each week, we take some time to check out books and shelves on Wednesday that are worth your attention. And each month, we dissect the previous catalog. We also have long-form discussions about books we've enjoyed, like Dan Clow's Ghost World and Jack Kirby and Mike Royer's Commanding. And if that's not enough, we also do creator interviews. Some of the talks you'll find in our archives feature Mike Mignola, Leila Del Duca, Sean Martinborough, Emma Beebe, and Greg Rucka. So that's a lot of content for everybody. Please subscribe to Robots from Tomorrow in iTunes or Stitcher so you never miss a thing. Robots from Tomorrow has hours of comic-focused entertainment week in and week out. And now, back to your show. And we are back to talk about Batman the Detective number three, written by Tom Taylor, illustrated by uh, Andy Kubert. I know that I'm enjoying this book a lot more than you are. I know that. Probably, yeah. Um, but I, I just think that this is a good, this is a good version of, of what a Batman miniseries kind of could be. This is a story that I don't think would ever really be told in like an ongoing Bat title. I think Ducard's an interesting subcharacter, like an interesting, uh, you know, foil for Batman as our Knight and Squire. This is not going to change the world by any means, but I think this is actually a, a pretty fun book right now. But I mean, look, I would, I would read, I would choose almost anything in continuity. You, me, and Zach are having a conversation in our in our <laughs> lads chat this week about how you and I are pretty much just we are more interested in the meta narrative than anything else. Whereas Zach claims that he's over the meta narrative, so Zach should love a book like this. I but, can't wait until he's back on the show, to, so, to, so, so you so we and can, I can just go off the top rope on him <laughs> um but you know it, so th this is not obviously part of like the infinite frontier meta narrative at all and actually i would be fine if you said you didn't feel like we need to cover this anymore because i don't think there's anything happening here that's going to inform that meta narrative and i feel like our show in a very real way is about the meta narrative of dc comics more than anything else Yes. So I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily argue with you if you said like, no, nah, we don't have to talk about this book anymore. But I, I am enjoying it. It is not the best book I read this week. 
by any means, but I, I think it's an absolutely fine Tom Taylor title. I, I'm happy to keep reading it for the show, and I think it's because, like, um, this, despite my not loving it, it goes down really smoothly. It's um, It never takes very long to read. There, there's a decent bit of dialogue in it, too. It's not like it's, like... It's not like it's a silent issue or anything, but I right. just feel like it's very the tone and the pacing and sort of the rhythm of the dialogue is 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 nice and brisk. I can get through it very quickly and I enjoy it well enough. But um, yeah, it's just so not earth shattering. It's to me, it's like um, really I, I think I used the word boilerplate like a dozen times the last time we talked about this. You did. And I'm not going to I'll use it just that once again, but that's that same thing applies to this issue. I think it's just so plain. Um, there's very little of the, of the Tom Taylor character flavor, even in this. Although I think there is a little bit with Ducard. Ducard is almost like a, like I could see Ducard being now Andy circus is the new, uh, Alfred, I believe. Right. <laughs> in the, in Probably, the Batman. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> But I could see him playing Ducard in this this characterization of him. Um, he's kind of got that smirk and that kind of like I'm I'm thinking one step ahead of you, even if you're Batman type thing going on. And, and it's it's very much the like his role in Black Panther, right? <laughs> like minus the DJing stuff. Um, and it's funny. I was kind of thinking like Eddie Izzard could play this character for a similar reason, just because of the smirk. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Are we so, a somebody casting somebody... show now? Yeah, we're going to. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> that's that's us now. Who's Bruce Wayne? In the... Bruce Wayne in this is... Uh... Ooh, um... It's interesting because he played uh, he played Slade Wilson before, but uh, Joe Manganiello. <laughs> okay, all right. Like, all right. beefier, you know... Um... Still good looking, but like uh, more rugged than your your average Bruce Wayne. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I could see that. I think I'd want him to age a little bit more, but, okay. but yes. Who do, who, do, who do you see in this role? Well, I think he's a good pick in like five to ten years. Okay. Well, who? If you, but the movie's uh, being made this week, buddy. Come on, Hollywood uh, Dan, Daniel Craig. Ladies and gentlemen, I, the weekend. I, I swear to God, I thought you were going to say Dan Aykroyd. I was going <laughs> to shit my pants with glee because that would I be was, the greatest. I saw a great clip of Dan Aykroyd telling his uh, alien story. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I saw it just the other day. Uh, anybody anybody who's interested in, in whatever that sounds like, uh, just Google Dan Aykroyd alien story. Uh, Britney Spears, maybe will help you find you type in yes. Britney Spears as well and it'll help you find it. Yes. Um, I, I've told you that I, I met Mr. Ackroyd, right? Yeah, you had him sign a bottle of crystal. <laughs> yes, exactly. It, it, it's it. The empty bottle of uh, still sits in my uh, my kitchen cabinet to this day. <laughs> Did he sign it? Uh, uh, judge, tough break, kid. Uh, tough break, no. kid. Uh, you use the bucket of ice on your marbles. You're sincerely Z. No, he did not. <laughs> I was gonna say uh, Judge uh, Valkenheiser or whatever his name was in Nothing But Trouble. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! 
No, he signed it as whatever rest his character. Rest in peace, Shaq G. What? I said rest in peace, Shaq G. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I was going to say uh, he signed it as whatever his character was in uh, Spies Like Us. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. How about uh, uh, Zelensky from uh, Zelensky? Uh, I, I just did the Britain. whole. I just did the whole note he left in in, in, <laughs> in uh, Tommy Boy. Oh yeah, that's what that was from. Okay, yeah, I, I, what? I have signed every card I've given by my brother, including his wedding card, with that exact phrase for <laughs> years now. That's okay. Um. Uh, <laughs> all right. Which is this is the last Dan Aykroyd thing I'm gonna bring up. You, if you can keep going, if you want to, but which is the worst Dan Aykroyd movie? I've only seen one of them, but I have a feeling you've seen both. Mm. Celtic Pride <laughs> or My Fellow Americans? I have seen both of those. <laughs> <laughs> uh, My Fellow Americans is is the worst movie, and it's uh. I mean, I don't think Celtic Pride is probably very funny at all, but when I was a kid, I thought it was funny. <laughs> I've only so. seen Celtic Pride. Um, none, <laughs> there is no pride in my having seen Celtic Pride. <laughs> I mean, it probably doesn't hold up at all. I don't know if it was ever a thing to begin with, let alone a thing that could hold up now. I mean, it was on like... TNT or something. Oh, I saw it in the movie theater, bitch. I mean, I I, I went to go see that in the movies um, when I was, you know, however old. 11? Who knows? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, back to Dan Aykroyd playing Batman, which means back to Batman the Detective. Anything else to say here? Um... No, I I don't think... I think I said my piece on this one. We were, we were trying to be more rapid fire than this, and then we got hung up on Dan Aykroyd. Daniel Stern movies. Yes. <laughs> uh, by the way, there is there is there is definitely proof that my felt that uh, Celtic Pride and Uncut Gems takes place in the same universe. So <laughs> <laughs> just leave it at that. Uh, well, is that because um, the Boston Celtics Happy, play a role in both? Yes. Happy Gilmore is in. Um, Uncut Gems and Shooter McGavin is in Celtic Pride. Yes, <laughs> yes. Let's go with that. Um, man, I can't believe I pulled Celtic Pride without a, without a second. Like, I need to think about that for one second. A movie I saw one time thirty years ago, probably. Yeah. Um, just pulled out of the ether. Yet there are times I forget the names of people I love. All right. Let's move on to Batman Urban Legend. Did you see Shooter McGavin is going to be in Secret Invasion? <laughs> I did not see that, no. Uh, I, okay, we can get off of I, I did see the Shooter McGavin um, that when you look on Cameo, it doesn't say the name of the actor. It says Shooter McGavin. He is listed as Shooter McGavin on Cameo. Are you sure it's not the Twitter parody account Shooter McGavin? No, it is actually the actor who played Shooter McGavin. Okay. Christopher um, McDonald. Christopher McDonald, yes, exactly. Call him by his name. He he was in Requiem for a Dream. He was the, the game show host yeah. in Requiem for a Dream. He was in, apparently, My Fellow Americans um, or Celtic Pride. I forget which one you said. Uh, I think it's Celtic Pride. Um, he yes. just knows that his SEO is better if he goes by Shooter McGavin. Exactly, yes, yes. <laughs> he, know, he knows that somebody for a bachelor party is looking to hire yes. Shooter McGavin to do a cameo <laughs> while wishing the groom... Not Christopher McDonald. Yes, exactly. They okay. do not. They do not care that he was in. Um, I just thought of another one, and I forgot what it is. 
Um, uh, whatever. Okay. Anyway, he's so good at playing like the shooter oh. McGavin villain. Yes, like, he is. Oh yes, man, he is. Oh, he is so good in that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, did I send you the article by the way that interviewed all the O'Doyles from Billy Madison? <laughs> no. Oh, I gotta I gotta find it and send it to you. Uh, they what recently tracked. Was that a great idea? What a great idea for an article. Yeah, uh, they recently had a. Uh, they recently <laughs> reunited all the all the McGavins. They were, not the McGavins. The uh, Odoos. The reason I think of it is one of them said that he prefers Happy Gilmore. So <laughs> that's why I thought of it. That's funny. All right, back on track. Batman: Urban Legends Four. Uh, I, my my thing I want to say before we get into this the stories here. Is it just me, or was there a really concerted effort to make this book about the different generations in Gotham? Like, the first story is very much about how Red Hood and Batman do things differently. The second story is very much about uh, Luke Fox stepping out from the shadow of his like of his family. The third story is very much about Tim Drake trying to find out who he is and like find his own place in things. It just felt very much like there's this generational thing in this book right now. Uh, that could be true. I, I think, um, I mean, gr- grifter kind of doesn't apply to that. Um, but I, then again, I don't really know what grifter's doing in this book anyway. No, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I think there's truth to what you say, but I also think like, do you mean this issue in particular or this series thus far? I, I mean this issue in particular, but I could also see it for the series. Because I think the series is more about just giving every Gotham adjacent character like sort of their due. Yes, here and there. One of um, multiple books that does that exact thing right now at DC. R- yes. Yep. Um, I think it's just an effort. It's an effort on DC's part to say like, look, we know we're printing lots of Batman books, but. Hey, not all the stories have to have Batman in them. We've got lots of Bat characters, right? So right. I just think it's them meeting us, not even halfway, but part of the way to saying, like, look, if we're going to set all of our books in Gotham, we're at least going to give every single character a story, which right. I, I guess is appreciated. Um, so, yeah, again, there's like there's truth to what you say, but... Yeah, I think it's I think it's more about just giving every Gotham adjacent character a story. Sure. All right, so the first story here is the continuation of the Red Hood story. You have been the most down on this of the three of us. I will continue to disagree with you about that. I think this is a very good Bruce and Jason story. I think this one in particular was very good because of all the Marcus Toe art we got. And I think that Eddie Barrows is kind of the downer of this. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of good Bruce Jason stuff here. Yeah. I, I'm still just not into this very much. The Marcus Toe art is very good. I will always enjoy a little bit of Marcus Toe. Um, but the... Zadarsky is just really intent on hammering home this thing with 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 Bruce and Jason that I just the estranged father son thing 
that I just get, I understand how it works. I understand the dynamic and I'm just not getting anything further out of seeing it play out this way yet again. Um, the, I'm sure the wayward son thing is well written and 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 effective for a lot of people, but I just to to me it's just a well worn territory, and I, I I just can't I can't get into it. Um, I was gonna make a Kansas carry on wayward son joke, but I'm not gonna do it. <laughs> I, I rocked that in uh, in Guitar Hero. Okay. Or Rock I, Band, whichever I, one. Of them. I rose above the noise and confusion to not make that joke. So. <laughs> All right. Um, let's talk about the Batwing story called Superman Punch, written by Cameron Johnson, who plays the character on Batwoman. I did not realize that Luke Fox was on Batwoman. So again, I'm not watching it, but that's fine. I think that's a fairly new development. I believe it is as well. And I think the costume just got introduced for Batwing. Yes, I want like to say Luke. Week. I want to say Luke Fox has maybe been on the show before, but not as Batwing. Okay. Um, and this is illustrated by Loiso McKenzie. I thought this was kind of a nothing story. It's fine. It's it's an excuse to. This was an excuse to get a Batwing story to come out the week that they're debuting the Batwing Batwing costume on Batwoman, and. Like, kudos to them for being able to time this this way, because usually mm-hmm. DC is not good at doing this sort of stuff, as we've established on the show. Thoughts? Yeah. No, I, I think, yeah, there was really, it was the least con- consequential story probably ever, but but <laughs> I, I will say, I will say I kind of liked the riddle. Um, yes. I thought the riddle was, you know, a lot of times the writers of Riddler stories, um, uh, they'll imply a puzzle or they'll do a riddle that's either so common everybody knows it or um, is not really even a riddle. Like sometimes sometimes they replace like the Riddler uh, doing a riddle with just like solve this crossword puzzle or something. (laughs) That's not really a riddle. Um, So I thought the... The the AMPM riddle that the rid- that he came up with for the Riddler for this was pretty clever, actually. Can I um, can I tell you something very cute? That can we be a proud dad for a second? Oh boy, sure. So my kids are playing today. They my son has a Batman figure. My daughter has a Batgirl figure. And they were playing, and my daughter said, "Who's the Batman villain with the question marks all over him?" And I said, "That's the Riddler." And she said, "Uh, uh, hey Riddler, who's about to get punched in the face?" You and then punched him in the face with the, playing with the game. I thought that was, that was fun, so <laughs> I appreciated that. Wow, yeah, yeah, very nice. Um, yeah, other than that clever bit, I thought this was very uh, here's that word again applied to a different uh comic boilerplate, like, mm-hmm. like you said, it's just an excuse to have a, a, a Batwing comic. This would have slotted in very well in like the Walmart issues where oh, like yeah. it's impossibly standalone story that um doesn't fit into any particular era or anything which is you know it's fine is what i'm saying yes no, nothing nothing wrong with it riddle kind of clever not much more. art art very plain i thought yes agreed 
um, is what it is. Nothing, nothing to write home about, unfortunately. So the next story is uh, Tim Drake's story called "Some of Our Parts," written by Me- uh, Megan Fitzmartin, illustrated by Belen Ortega. And you got to talk about this because you you texted Lad's chat with a theory about this, and I'm not going to say anything about it until after you explain your theory. But I I, I do have some comments on it. So go ahead. A Tim Drake is by. <laughs> and it's canon now. Okay, so I understand where you're getting that from. There is a the whole theme of this is sort of Tim trying to figure out who he is, and we see him meeting this guy for for dinner. And I understand that if you're looking for that, you can kind of see it. I'm not saying it's not there. I'm saying it's not the slam dunk you're saying it is. <laughs> you're saying it like you're basically saying like he's filling out an application and it's like how do you sexually identify and he wrote bisexual. Like that's that's the that's the level of confident you are with this. I don't feel that confident about this. I also like I don't care about this. I I think it's not I don't think it's I think if you're going to retrofit a character into being bisexual there are others I would do that with first, but I don't think it's a bad choice. I don't really care. It doesn't really matter to me. I just, I just think that you, you were like, this is definitely happening. Everyone knows it. Shut the fuck up. And I, I, I don't think it's quite that strong. I mean, it is. I mean, what, what, what happens when, uh, <laughs> what happens when in a couple months, like the culmination of this story is exactly where that's going. Okay. I mean, you gotta, you gotta like, like, like part of, part of what you do as a reader, part of what we do is like reading between the, the very obvious lines or the, or the obvious subtext that's there, you know, I just think like one of the things that you said in Lad's chat was like, well, Tim's, Tim's thing is always, or recently has always been that. He doesn't know who he is and he's trying to figure things out. And and I'm like, well, yeah, that's true. But like, come on. He takes this guy on a date. <laughs> in this. I mean, I don't think that two guys having having dinner is a date, though, always. Right. But no, that's obviously not. You and I have had dinner. Absolutely. Uh, well, maybe, that... maybe that was a date, actually. <laughs> I mean, I, I think our wives would consider it, consider it a date, um, you know. Uh, or, or at least be hopeful just to get us out of the fucking house a little bit, um, you know. But but no, I mean I, I don't I don't necessarily think that. I don't know. It just it, it just seems to me like you're you're very confident about this, and I don't. I I could I could absolutely see it being a thing, or I could see it being nothing, and it's just we're reading too much into this. Okay, well I don't want to get into like fisticuffs over it. But the, the, the one thing I want to say before we drop the subject is that, like, you're right. Uh, two guys going out for burgers that t- Tim Wayne is paying for. Tim, Tim Wayne, as he's referred to in this, hearkening back to the fact that Bruce officially adopted mm-hmm. Tim, which I think is that was a pre-Flashpoint thing. This character that he's out with in this issue, by the way, is a pre-Flashpoint. Uh, I believe yes. th- he was from Bill Willingham's uh, Robin Run. Um, 
but um, you know, yes, it, it doesn't have to be a date. Yes, there's all kinds of uh, questioning uh, from Tim and from Babs about who Tim is and what he's looking for. I feel like when you put all of that stuff together in the context of this comic, there's al- there's almost a line or a tidbit on every page that refers to that or hints to that or is subtextual in some way. I think when you put it all together, it makes the picture very clear to me. Like there's this line early on where Babs says, you're so incredibly scared that if you use that big, brilliant brain of yours to analyze yourself, what you find is going to change you. To me, that is such a strong, especially when you consider what the, the, the subtext that, again, this is, this is fans putting something on Tim. So I want to be careful that like, you know, DC shouldn't just do something because the fans have fun with with something outside of the context of the comics, you know? Mm-hmm. But I think there is such a history of this sort of subtext with the character, um, whether it's canon or not, obviously, that when you do a line like that, when you say what you find is going to change you, that mixed with him being incredibly nervous to see this guy again and just some of the subtext in that dialogue. I just, I could not help but read that and feel like that's where this is going because, because it would also be DC's way of finally setting Tim Drake apart, something that they've had trouble with in recent years for whatever reason, you know, um, they didn't really have that problem free pre flashpoint, but since the new 52, they've just had trouble placing this character, right? Uh, they've messed with his origin. They've messed with his, his, his identity, name. His, his, his name, his secret identity many times. I feel like this would just be such an obvious way to take this Robin, set him apart in some way that, you know, it's going to upset all the right people, <laughs> but it's going to make a lot of people happy. It's going to make this character unique. Um, it's, it's, it's the way I think things have been going and they're, I, I really do think, I mean, you're right. This could all just be left to subtext and it could be DC's way of, again, like playing it coy and having their cake and eating it too. But I feel like so much stuff was culminating into something in this one short little story that I, I cannot help but feel like that is where this is going, especially to do this in Pride Month. I feel like, you know. But they're not that's... doing it in Pride Month. They're hinting at something that will be paid off on well, I, that's, months that's, down the road. That's semantics, but yes. like <laughs> Semantics. But I, I, I just feel like if DC is not doing that, they're being awfully careless with it. And like one cursory glance at social media would – bear that out uh today so i'm just saying you know like i feel very strongly that that's where this is going whether it is at the end of this particular story or in whatever the next tim drake story is i I feel like within a year that will be that will be canon i -hmm. I will bet you some no no bucks i'll bet you a no prize that within a year it's culminated on see i guess to me that doesn't really make him 
all the more interesting. Like, I mean, I guess it, it it gives him something that other other Bat characters, other Robins don't have, right? But like, I don't think the problem with Tim Drake has been that his personal life isn't interesting. It is him and Stephanie have one of the more interesting relationships in in all of uh, in in all of DC's comics. I, I don't I don't think that he's lacking. And pers- now it's even more interesting. <laughs> I guess, but it just it doesn't seem like he's it doesn't seem like that's what he's lacking. What's lacked is a vision for Red Robin or Robin, like the the, the hero. Um that's what's been missing. That's me, just a guy who kicks villains in the face. That's let, let that's me also, not the character. No, but 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 I think again, like there's there are things that make those characters interesting when they are playing when they are in their superhero guys right um okay yeah and i don't think that this is that but the the last thing i want to say about this is that i find it very interesting that less than a year ago he was given a new character name of um drake of drake and that is explicitly said here nope that is not (laughs) that is not his his name no one get. No one's gonna call him that. Yeah, other writers are already making fun of, it. of the Bendis stuff. Yeah, exactly. The the continued yeah. Bendis erasure at DC Comics. Um. Okay. Anyway, very... send your angry mail to Brian at multiversitycomics.com. Go right ahead. Um. Last story here is the Grifter story by Matthew Rosenberg and Ryan Benjamin. I liked this one better than the others. That's not saying too much. Because I think that bringing in the Wildcats is always kind of a fun thing when DC brings in some Wildstorm stuff, especially because they've hinted at it for so long but haven't actually done it in a very long time. So I'm fine with there being... I would much rather a Matthew Rosenberg Wildcats story than another installment of the Scripter story. But again, that's not saying too much. Any thoughts on this? Mm, I agree with what you just said Um in concept, um, but I have to admit I did not read this story this month. I, I skimmed it just to see the art and to see what happened, and uh, and uh, what's her name showed up, and <laughs> what is her name? Uh, um, I could pull it if you gave me a minute, but I'm, I'm not going to bother. Uh, Doesn't matter. Anyway, anyway, yeah, I was just like, huh, oh, oh, more more Wildstorm, okay. Don't, I don't really like it in the context of, of Batman, but um, yeah, I agree. With, yes, I would rather see a straightforward Wildstorm book, even if it was from this creative team, than this, um, you know, Batman adjacent thing that I, I guess I couldn't care less about. Yeah. All right, let's move over to Detective Comics number 1037, uh, written by Mariko Tamaki. Illustrated by Victor Bogdanovic. Um, you should definitely tweet at our friend Walter Richardson about this book. Just see what he thinks about it. That's all I'm going to say about that. Um, so this issue definitely has the most action of any tech issue we've gotten from Tamaki thus far. I thought Bogdanovic did a nice job. I, I like that guy's art quite a bit. Um, Zealot. That was her name. <laughs> yeah, yes, her name is Zealot. Thank you, Vince. Um, I didn't miss Dan Mora here as much as I thought I would. I thought Bogdanovic did a nice job of filling in. 
I especially liked, and I'm going to forget the character's name, the father of the woman who was murdered. Um. Oh yeah. Uh. Uh. Mr. Worth. Mr. Worth, yes. I like how Bogdanovich just basically makes him into the world's biggest dude and just, like, <laughs> full of rage. And I, I thought all that was very good. Um, he's like uh, he's like Kingpin and Craven the Hunter combined. <laughs> yes. Uh, Kingpin the Hunter. Yeah. Munson the Hunter. Going with, with uh, Munson from Kingpin? Uh, what's his name? Uh, what's his first name in Kingpin? What? <laughs> the character from the movie Kingpin. Oh. What's his first name? Oh, his name is Munson. Roy, Roy Munson. Roy, Roy Munson the Hunter. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. And and Big Earn. Yes. <laughs> you call me Earn or Big Earn. <laughs> uh, I think I tore my sack. Okay. Um, <laughs> anything to say about this issue? We're trying to move things along here. Um, yes. Yeah. I can be brief. Um, Huntress is cool. That's yes. for starters. Um. I did enjoy the Bogdanovich arc. I, I miss Dan Mora just because, like, if you're going to have two artists I really like, I wish they'd be on different books so that I have two different books with artists I like. Um, but, but, uh, but yeah, a good substitute for Mora, too. I think they do similar things, especially with their expressive character work. I think they do similar um, you know, facial acting and things like that. Um the story is kind of the same other than I, other than that. Like I like how Bruce is kind of roped into this, um, you know, de- detective story and he himself has become even a suspect in the story, at least for some of the characters. Um, I, I like that a lot of it takes place out of the bat suit. Um, the backups did nothing for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was okay. Yeah. Fine enough. Fine enough. All right, let's uh, move on to the backup. There's, there were two backups here. One was a Deb Donovan backup by Mariko Tamaki and Kale Mostert. I don't give a shit about this. Do you? No, no, I, I could not. I, I didn't even like really process the words as I was reading it. Same. Second one is called Three Minutes. It's by John Ridley and Dustin Wynn. And it's another Lucius Fox story. And John Ridley has sort of become the Fox family writer between the next Batman and the stuff with uh, Future State. This was sort of the first time Lucius Fox is brought into the fold by Batman. And I thought that it was uh, it was fine. It's always nice to see Dustin Wynn art. Yep. Any Art's other notes on nice. it? Yeah, I think ooh, so. I think John Ridley's a really smart and talented writer. Um, I think that the the um, I forget the name of it, but the the the, the other his the other history of the DC yes, universe. Yes, that's the other it. History, yes, I think that is such a smart, well written book. Um, so, like, I want to pay him a bunch of compliments before I say. I'm not quite sure about this take on Lucius and his perspective in this story. He calls he calls what Bruce and Alfred have going a cult. <laughs> and I get the sentiment and it's very interesting. It's just that it's it's a kind of a new curveball. I wasn't expecting it to be 
something that was worded that strongly. And I just need to see more of it. it you know, he he wrote this as the beginning, so I'm assuming like as the um, as the next Batman stuff gets fleshed out more, as the Fox stuff gets fleshed out more, we may get more of uh, Lucius's feelings about this. Maybe I'll be able to buy it more easily the longer it goes on or something. Right. But it was it was strong in this story in a way that I wasn't really getting from some of the other Fox family stuff recently. And so, I don't know. I just have to see how it plays out, I guess. But I don't know how I felt about that characterization uh, in this. What I will say is I feel like this gives a clearer idea of why... Tim or Jace would be so unwilling to share him being Batman with his father because we see the sort of disdain that that Lucius has for Batman here and the idea that the only reason he's doing this is to protect Dick and others who will be in that similar place right so I think it makes sense as to why he isn't as I guess why Tim would be more likely to be, um, you know, just hesitant to talk about this with his father. Mm-hmm. If that was if this is something that Lucius brought up at home, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, let's move over to Future State Gotham, written by Josh Williamson and Dennis Culver, illustrated by Giannis Milano Giannis. Again, this book looks great. I don't really know why it the way it exists. Um, there was a Raphael Grandpa pinup that was great, and they reprinted the John Ridley story from Batman Black and White number one, the most recent version of that. I'm not really sure why that was in here, but whatever, it's fine. Anything to say about this book? Yeah, it's kind of funny that the the, the backups are just cobbling together old material for this. The la- the last time it was that. Um... Oh, I forget. Was it a Tomo? Yeah, um, it, it was. It was a. Um, yeah, it was, it was, it was definitely an, an old manga Batman yeah, story. I believe it was Katsuhiro Otomo. Um, but regardless, yeah, it was an old. Yeah, that's who it was. Um, uh, yeah, they're like repurposing old material for this, which makes me feel like it shouldn't exist. I I think the black and white aspect of the main story works just fine, <laughs> but then like. This is very unfair of me and, and probably not even true. But in the context of a comic where they're publishing old material in the back, it makes me think like, oh, they just got art for this and they didn't bother finding a colorist or whatever. Like, I don't know. It just it, it seems like this is a half-baked comic that's being put out. That said, I'll look at Milano Giannis' art anytime. I think the art is great. I could not care less. I, I'm, I'm a fan of, of Josh Williamson. I could not care less about this story, though. We already teased it earlier in this episode. It feels redundant. Um, you know, a, a Red Hood story in this context, it just feels like we're, we are beyond future state at this point. And so this, this either belonged, you know, during the future state event or maybe as a future story somehow repurposed in uh, the context of Infinite Frontier. Because, like, 
if we just got Peacekeeper One introduced in um, in one of these books, <laughs> and uh, uh, it was and, in Batman, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. So, like, I I know it wouldn't make any sense right now, but if they somehow aligned things so that Jason was working with the Peacekeepers or as a double agent or whatever concurrently with that stuff. Maybe it would make a little more sense or be more interesting to me. But right now it's like in the meta narrative, I'm not sure why I'm getting this story. At least the art is, is nice to look at. The art is, is more than just nice to look at. It's fucking beautiful. Like (laughs) Milano Giannis is just, is great. And I think that there is, there's very, very little I can, I can say that will be stronger than that, but everybody should check out this art because it's really, really good. Yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I wish I cared more about this story. Uh, up next is the Joker number four, written by James Tynan the fourth, illustrated by Guillaume March. And um, man, I feel like there's, I don't have too much to say about this. Not because I didn't like this. I loved this issue. I'm continuing to love this book. But this very much felt like more of the same. It's fun to see the different factions that are all going up against the Joker. I think that the Joker-Jim Gordon (laughs) stuff has been really fun and interesting. There's a lot of good action here, and March is so good at drawing action and making it look just fucked up and fun. This is is fun. I enjoy this book. Yeah, um, I, I did. I got a kick out of the moment where, like like you said, the different factions were coming together saying like, ah, we're taking the Joker in actually. (laughs) And like, um, of course he likes slips everyone's bonds. Um, yeah, that was fun. There's a little more narration than I want in a comic at this point. I think I will see you that point. Yes. I, I, yeah, I think Tidian's giving into his, uh, lesser impulses, with this issue and just a little too much. I, I, I know what they're doing because it's Jim Gordon. And like when you write Gordon, I think there's a tendency to, to, to want to make it a very like uh, detective casebook type thing where he's being very analytical about, you know, him versus the evils of society or whatever. And it's playing out in a very journalistic fashion. Um, it's just that that it's a lot of words to 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 not learn anything new really about Jim Gordon. One thing that so I really liked Snyder's uh, Batman run on the whole, but this thing where like, and he's not the only one that did this. You know, Tynion's done it. Other writers for Gordon have done it. But like, it seems like we're constantly learning things about Gordon's past, and we're supposed to say like. Oh, it's fucked up that it's either fucked up that he had to go through that or it's fucked up that he thought that and was going to do and then and then he did yeah, it was too raw. There's always some some additional raw thing about his past that gets revealed or whatever. And it just it just all it's diminishing returns at this point, you know. I was really enjoying this story. I still am. But like you don't need that narration. Just the prospect that maybe he had to team up with the Joker for for a second was more interesting than anything I read in the narration. Him getting involved in this conflict between the Joker and Lady Bane and, 
you know, whoever else on this island. All of that stuff plays out more interestingly on the page without even thinking about any of this narration that's going on. Um, and I just wish writers would more often just trust the story and throw some of that extra stuff out. Because to, to me, I, it's my taste. I can only speak for myself. It's not adding anything. Um, I'm here for the wacky story that uh, Tynion has crafted and the insane art. Yes. I'm not here for the extra trappings, the secret history we already know about Gordon. Yeah, and, and that's, I think, the way you just put it at the end there is perfect. If this was new information... I think I'd feel very differently about it, but almost none of this is new information. Almost all of this is stuff we've known for years and years and years. So to have all this narration without giving us anything that's really new just seems dumb. I, I, don't, I don't know how else to put it. it just seems dumb. It, it just feels like a writer thinks it has to be there, <laughs> you know? Yes. Whether, whether it serves the story or not. Um, I don't know. It's a it's a trap writers fall into, I think. But I'm just some dumbass with a podcast. That, so <laughs> really, what do I know? I don't disagree, though. I don't at all. Thanks. I am a dumbass. I know. You agree. <laughs> um, and then we have the, the punchline backup by Sam Johns and James Tynan IV, illustrated by Mirka and Delfo. Um, I did like like uh, half half drugged Harper. Like shooting her grappling hook gun out of the window and pulling herself out. That was kind of fun. Punchline is the new Queen of Blackgate, I guess, is interesting. I want more Harper stuff here. And with Harper basically comatose or like in a half comatose state, this whole issue, we weren't going to get too much Harper. So this is just fine for me. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you said, I feel basically the same way. Um, I was kind of hoping that this had more of a connection to the actual Joker story. Maybe, maybe it will, but I feel like four issues in now, it's kind of, it's kind of lost whatever tether it may have had. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It's not not blowing me away. Yeah, agreed. All right, that brings us to our final book of the week: Wonder Woman number seven seventy three. Written by Becky Cloonan and Michael W. Conrad, illustrated by Travis Moore. We said last time that this arc had gone on at least one issue too long. I think we can now say definitively it's gone on at least two issues too long. <laughs> I'm just, I'm done with this. I have no interest in this. I have found it very hard to get through this comic. Um, yes, I agree. I think, like, again, uh, the stuff with like Wonder Woman and Thor in this, it's we we kind of got the point, and I feel like they they just hammer it home. Uh, not to make a pun not intended there, you know, um, but like they, they they really do hammer the point home about like uh, Diana's personality versus Thor's personality. Um, the Dr. Psycho stuff was a fun wrinkle into all of this, I think. Um, like like him being the true villain behind this and, and kind of messing with, with everybody, Thor and everyone else, 
was interesting. But as a whole, like, yeah, definitely, definitely a couple issues too much. I was hoping for more of a kind of a, a back and forth globe trotting affair for Diana. And, and she just got stuck in this same uh, sort of fantasy setting, this same singular like fantasy setting for too long. Um, I guess I liked I liked the falling action of it. I liked uh, the stuff with her and and Siggy. Like that relationship was fun and charming for what it was. Um, he's a charming character, but aside from that, yeah, we just we spent just a little too much time um, with a plot that that kind of spun its wheels. Yeah, I'll agree with that. I'm- I think that can also doubly been be said for the backup here. Which, oh, I like the backup. Oh, I, I was so bored by the backup this week. And, and part of that might just be the fact that I was bored by the main story. <laughs> I think you were, yes. I think you were fatigued. I might have just been fatigued by it, yeah. Well, tell us why the backup was good. Oh, just the, the art is so playful. and 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 this is like... <sighs> I don't know if it's really expanding the Wonder Woman mythos at all, but narrator voice, it's not. But, right, but at least it is focusing on it versus like the main story was adding all this uh, cursory uh, historical fantasy mythos that I felt like Diana wasn't always a good fit for um, necessarily. Or it was like too it was like too wordy, too focused on being wordy instead of having fun. And I think like this is definitely wordy, but it's a lot of fun. It's um the art is just so fun. I, I wish DC would kind of have uh the cojones to make the main story look like this, you know? I don't disagree with that. I think that's fair. Um all right. Well, thank you for joining us this week, as always. I said I think next week or the week after is when Zach's triumphant return will happen. But for next week, Vince, what are the comics we're going to be reading? Um, I actually have them, believe it or not. Booyah. They, <laughs> they are – it just doesn't look like the full list to me, but I, it's, um, I'm going off of what's in our advanced review files. Um, Catwoman, 32, Nightwing, 81 – We've got Static Season 1, which I think, like, that's not part of Infinite Frontier, obviously, but I think, you know, it's a new number one. We, we should probably yes, look at it. I agree. Um, we've got the uh, <laughs> the Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow, which, it hey, it looks wonderful. Um, and then we've got the Flash 771. Seems like a light week. I don't know if they... Do you know if I missed anything there? I am I am looking that up right now. So give me a second here. Um, but what I was going to say is, though, you know, this is... I feel like we got a lot of... This week felt like there was a lot there because of the the DC Pride book. But I feel like the the sort of... The, the go-to for DC now has only been six, seven books a week. Um, yeah. So, okay, here's what we have. I we, think we're missing a Justice League issue... Uh, right. No, no, we're not. No, no. Catwoman, Flash, um, Nightwing, Static, Supergirl. That's it. Yeah. Oh wow. 
yeah. some stuff some stuff must have got pushed then because I think like isn't isn't Justice League twice a month that that might start later this month I want to say next week is maybe the Justice League week okay but it doesn't really okay. matter all, all yeah, that matters no. is that we'll be back with these books for you next week we we will read some books for <laughs> yes. next week. Whatever we'll they read are. some books next week. That is that's an excellent way to put it. Um, if you have to get in touch with us, um, Zach is on Twitter at WilkerFox. Again, tweet at him, shame him into catching up, and also tell him you miss him. I am on Twitter at Brian is app. If you need Vince, he is not on Twitter, but he is probably waiting for a tow. So just uh, just you know, that's really really mean. After the. 48 hours that I've had. Well, I mean, am I wrong? That's the, that's the meanest thing you've ever said to me. No, it's not. You didn't do anything wrong. Fuck those companies. <laughs> I was at the end of my rope, you asshole. <laughs> but you're, but it's better now. Was... <laughs> Some scars never heal. <laughs> well, I'm sorry. How about this? I'll change it, okay? Uh if you need to get in touch with, with Vince, he is no longer waiting for a tow, so now he is enjoying his time on Farmers Only. Better? I'll get you a tow, dude. I'll get you a tow. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm drinking my coffee. I'm calmer it. than you are. Calmer than you are, dude. <laughs> uh, I'll get you a tow. My buddies didn't buy, didn't die face, de- face down in the <laughs> muck for me to uh, enjoy this family restaurant. <laughs> All right. Uh, I would like my underwear back. Dude. All right. Uh, on that note, goodbye, everybody. Oh, I wish we had Walt on the show to bust his fucking balls right now about this, though. Oh, God, that'd be glorious. <laughs>